Hello, people. This is Vinay, your host of the Shiny Happy People podcast. I hope you're all doing well. Welcome back for another action-packed episode. For those of you who listened in the last one, I kind of talked about why this week is especially important for me. This is Facilitation Week. It is a week that the International Association of Facilitators and the entire community of everybody who uses facilitation comes together, celebrates all that is wonderful about this, and we promote the power of facilitation. Uh, we just finished a summit last week. I hope some of you were there. Very proud to have been part of that summit and have my organization also be one of the sponsors. Really cool. Okay. So keeping in theme of facilitation, our guest today, she's a consultant, she's a trainer, she's got a master's degree in adult education, 25 years plus experience as a professional facilitator. She does a lot of consulting in the area of organization development. Uh, she's a recognized leading expert on facilitation skills and her book, Facilitating with Ease is a worldwide bestseller with translations into many languages, including Chinese. Over the last two decades, she has trained thousands of people to be facilitators through her popular workshops. She's written several other books as well, which we're going to get into. Advanced Facilitation Strategies, Facilitating to Lead. She has an instrument. So right after this break, we're going to get into a conversation with Ingrid Benz, one of somebody I look up to hugely and a massive influence in my getting into this profession and getting slightly better at it uh, through her, reading her book and practicing. And it's been a privilege for me to have managed to get her on this podcast. So stay tuned. Okay, folks, we get started with the interview. Ingrid, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Wow. It's great it's to such, be here. It's such a pleasure to have you here. You know, uh, I've told you before, and I'll tell all our listeners, you're one of my gurus and my inspiration when it comes to facilitation. I quote your book all the time. So thank you for that book. You're very welcome. <laughs> thank you for using it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are in, in the field of facilitation will be very happy to hear what you have to say. But, you know, I'm going to start our conversation off, Ingrid. Um, while we all know the work that you do in facilitation, I am very curious. How did you get into facilitation? Well, I got into it by accident. And I think that's maybe quite common to many people because I never heard about facilitation. But I started out working in a community recreation uh, complex, and I was asked by the mayor's office to hold a public meeting to announce a park. And they told me everyone would be delighted with the park. And people came out from the community and they were very unhappy. Uh, there was as close to a riot as I've ever seen. They were yelling at me, telling me they didn't want it. They didn't want children running in their neighborhood. It was just a disaster. And uh, when I went back to work the next day, they called me to the mayor's office and said, well, you have to run the meeting again. 
but we're going to send you some help. And they didn't use the word facilitator. They just said help. And when I got there, there was a fellow from the University of Toronto and he, uh, he was from the Faculty of Education there. And he set up the room. He put up flip charts. He organized people. He had them working in groups on issues. And I thought, my God, I've got to find out more about this. <laughs> so it was kind of an eye-opening, painful eye-opening experience that I, I didn't understand that there even was group process. Wow. And, and after that, did you start to learn about it? Or did you kind of go, uh, yeah, he was pick up your skills? Yes, the fellow who came out was from the University of Toronto Faculty of Education, and there was a program there and still there um, on adult education. So I, I enrolled, he encouraged me to enroll, I did a master's there. And adult education is really about using facilitation to help people learn. And also, it's a lot about team building. So it was really the beginning of understanding the role of the neutral party in, in working with groups. And so I did my master's there. It took me a couple of years. I did it at night school. And then I worked in community development, actually, for many years and about six years. And then I moved into organization development consulting. So it was kind of a progression. But, but it's interesting you say that because I got into it by accident myself. And, and one of the things I always heard about group process facilitation is that it really found its footing and initial use in communities development, in NGO work, et cetera. Yeah. And I think your story is, again, validating that, right? Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think adult educators had a big role to play. I think the first people who went in the middle of the night to a, a newsprint outlet and bought newsprint and hung it on the wall, doing education work as well. So I think, I think there's a sort of a genesis there where they all overlap. And certainly I found that... Uh, the tools I used in community development and OD were the same, and so were the ones in the classroom. So really, I think once you have facilitation skills, you can move in a number of areas. Right. And then when you moved into OD, was that in the traditional corporate sector? Um, I moved in in the government at first. I was working for the Ontario government in Canada, and they had an OD section uh, which was unique for them. And I went there and I just had got my master's. I had been working in their policy division, division for a while. And uh, so I ended up moving in there. And uh, that was just good luck that they were having a department. So I spent five years uh, consulting internally to their ministries. So that was a good diversity of, of work. Wow. I mean, that's really interesting to see the government with an OD department doing, so you were like an internal facilitator almost, right? Working. Yes, with we were internal, so people didn't have to pay to use us. It was paid for. So we were very popular. And it uh, turns out they all had issues, sometimes team building issues. Sometimes uh, they were merging with other departments. And there was just a real diversity of work in, in so many different departments, everything from prisons to Department of Agriculture. It was just, you know, finance, it was everything. And, and that was a great experience. So I think working internally in OD is a great way to start because you yeah. can, yeah, because you have that umbrella. You don't have to find clients yet and you don't know your niche yet. So right. that really helped me get started. And how long did you stay in that before you decided to? Five years. five years. Yeah, okay. five years. And then I went on my own. Wow. <clears throat> And that's always a scary move. I know some of the people listening today may be saying, well, starting your own business, being freelance, that is a, it is a scary move because uh, you have to find clients all the time. Wow. Um, so, uh, And so, so since facilitation, uh, and what was the timeline? Was this, uh, when was this that you went into starting your own business? 
What year? Uh, 1989, actually. I left the government after five years in OD. And, um, and uh, so from 1989 till, 19, till 2015, I was an independent consultant, first in Canada, and then I moved to the United States and restarted my business again. Yeah. So independent all those years. So, so in 89, I'm just very curious, because so, I got into facilitation uh, in 98, 99. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in uh, 89, when you started to get out there as an independent consultant, I'm just very curious, did companies really understand the concept of group process facilitation? You know, I was very, very lucky. <clears throat> when I went out on my own, there was a huge initiative going on in a big company in America called GE, General oh, yeah. Electric. Oh, yeah, of course. Had, yeah, they had a guy named Jack Welsh who was a famous CEO, and he started something called Workout. Right, right, Work, yeah. Workout, have you heard of it? Yeah, many yes. people have heard about it. Yeah. It's still being used, so, yeah. Yeah, and so my colleague in the government went there as a consultant and hired me a few months later and said, we need help. We need to train our managers to run the process uh, because we don't want to be reliant on these outside consultants. So I came in to train people. That actually is the genesis of the book I wrote. So I came in to, to observe workout, and then I started to lead them, and then I started to train their internal people. And I worked with them on workout for six years off and on. So wow. it was like an automatic, if you can get a contract that lasts six years with any big company, you're laughing. So yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then they referred me, they didn't, they didn't uh, take outside work, but people called them all the time. And so I got all the referrals to all these different organizations. And I think the hook then was process improvement. Mm. Yeah, uh, they, correct. they didn't understand OD, but they knew process improvement was important and it was just starting to be talked about. So that's really how it all emerged. Yeah, and I know Jack Welch is very well known for the process improvement, the Six Sigma, bring, you yeah. know, using that across the organization. Okay, wow, yeah. that's a that's a very interesting timeline you have there. And yeah. six years with GE, I mean, th- that would have been an amazing lab to hone your skills and help everybody else get better yeah. at it as well. Uh, and what happened then, I know one of the questions you were going to ask is the genesis of the book, Facilitating right. with Peace. They asked me to start training people. I think at some point they thought we should, they should get rid of me um, and become uh, free of meeting me. And so I started to teach classes and I went and looked at all the textbooks out there and I just was not happy with how they were either too complicated or they weren't, they weren't written for lay people enough because these were managers and engineers. They didn't want to read a lot of theory. And so I really wrote the book as a binder for GE staff originally. So that's wow. how it started. That, that is really cool. I did not know that. I mean, I've read that book, but just knowing the, the background of it is, is so useful. Uh, so so that's where also the pocketbook comes from, right? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, so, so then I saw a pocketbook by the company that publishes them. It was It's Gold QPC in, in, in uh, Salem, New Hampshire. And I thought, well, I can do a small pocket version. I asked Wiley. They said, we don't care. So that was nice. And I wrote it by myself, self-published. It took it to a conference. And the goal people saw it and said, we'll, we're going to publish it. And so it had its own life. It, it lives in its own universe uh, as, a, as a what they call a premium. Mm. And I think some of the people listening to this call should maybe understand that sometimes you don't have to write a huge book. Yeah. Uh, a big textbook, you know, sometimes if you have a niche uh, that you want to write about or that you know about, don't hesitate to make a small pocket version. And you might, you might be surprised how it will get you work and find markets all it's all on its own. 
Right. Yeah, and and it's true, right? Because I think, like you said, when you the genesis of the book, you looked around what was outside. Um, I, I, I'm guessing that there were a lot of very very academic oriented books yeah. that went into yeah. this, and and some. Yeah. And that's one reason why I always felt facilitation is sort of was an exclusive club, and we need to get it out there to a lot more people. Just make it because every manager and every leader needs to become a facilitator as well. So yeah, and the other thing I would say to your listeners is, if you're thinking that you might have uh, material to write about, I think books that are applied are also missing. So, for example, instead of writing a book about facilitation 101, like I did um, lately, I've been writing books about facilitation in very specific areas. Like I wrote one recently, a small one how to facilitate IEP meetings. And these are very specific meetings that every school board mandates for every child where uh, in special needs, the parents must have a meeting with the school. And I did some training for groups that were having problems with these meetings. So I wrote a little slim book on how to run those specific meetings. And now school boards are buying them in, in, the, in, like in quantity. So you know, think about writing what you know, and don't hesitate to write very small niche books about specific things that can be helpful to people. Hmm. That, that, that is a great tip. So I, I have a question. I mean, when you first started this out, because my experience in facilitation in the initial days was this whole resistance or, or this ability to break down hierarchies, right, in the room as well. And, and some of the more senior people just did not like uh, being put out of the comfort zone. So what are some of the early challenges you faced in breaking that down? How did you get through that? I'm just curious. Any stories you want to share? Um, yeah, I think sometimes you're right. Senior people uh, feel that uh, they should have the first say. And I've often coached them beforehand to have the last say so that right. they know that they're not to run up to the board and put their dot on first or whatever you're doing, or that they hold back their comments. I've also coached them sometimes um, when you have an idea, why don't you ask it as a question and see if other people have the same views as you. And so I think coaching them ahead of time, if you can, this very senior people, um, because why have a public meeting if they, are going to shut down their, their people, you know? Mm. So if you're bringing people together, you want to hear their voices. So I think coaching them helps. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and the, the, the pre-work before the actual session sometimes takes uh, multiple mm. X's of time than the mm. actual work that you do, right? <laughs> In the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That The pre-work is everything, isn't it? And that sets the room up for success because if you haven't done that pre-work, then yeah. it's... Yeah, what's that expression? It's like pushing water uphill. Yeah, <laughs> and I think I think you need to have alternative designs because very often the design falls apart. I mean, I think the hard thing about our work is you have to read the room. Once you have an agenda, you can't just stick to it. Sometimes you have to change the whole thing. So you need you need to do your pre work, and then you need to be ready to ditch it and mm. do something emergent as well. So, right. so so when you started, how large? I mean, how big was the community of facilitators that you could hang out with and learn from and, uh, you know, just be part of? What was the community like then? Well, it's interesting because Canada has a lot of facilitators, That's really, right. really yeah. a lot. And part of it is the University of Toronto. Uh, but they've had a, a lot of facilitation, particularly in Ontario, where I was living, 
And I remember going to a conference there. Um, I guess it was about maybe 1993 or four. So I've been in the business for a while. And I think we had 1500 people wow. at the conference, a massive conference, huge ballroom full of people. So it took off really quickly. And I think part of it was that um, back in the 90s, teams was a hot new thing. And people were getting into teams and team building. And it was just one of those things where the companies were suddenly interested in having uh, this new stuff. They, they pushed back for a while and then they got onto it and they wanted it. Uh, so we had a big community and I, I have several colleagues still in Toronto. So I think, I think I was very lucky then to do that. And, and, you know, you said you moved to the U.S. And have you found that community in the U.S. as well? I live in a very small city in Florida on the West Coast, and okay. yeah, there are almost no businesses here. Right. And luckily, I found five women who are all in facilitation. And we've been a, we've been our own little self-help group for about 10 years. Oh. And so, yeah, so there's no work here. And when I got here was when I published Facilitating with Ease. It had been Ease. a binder. And I just went to conferences um, and gave seminars on team building, team improvement, whatever, and immediately got clients. And I think the book after that, I cannot tell you the number of times people called me and just started with, we have your book. So again, I would urge people to write something. I think, I think publishing helps put you on the map and it saved me from having no business at all down here. Yeah. Well, Ingrid, I'm not sure many of us could write the kind of book that you wrote, uh, because that book is, Brilliant. I mean, it, it's what got me into it, got me hooked, your book and Roger Schwartz's book and, and a couple right. of others, right? So those were the ones that uh, just keep me going, as they say. You're listening to the Shiny Happy People podcast. Subscribe to us on your favorite platforms. This podcast is sponsored by C2COD, your organizational development consulting partner bringing people and strategy together follow us on twitter linkedin instagram and facebook using the handle at c2cod and get updates on our upcoming episodes but one of the one of the things that's there right have you seen or, or from your own perspective in the work that you've done and, and i struggled with this because i personally pick up books learn methods learn processes that others have done uh, how have you created new methods and processes? What's been the ideation behind it? Is it just trial and error? Um, I think at first it was, although I was very lucky to get into the GE project because they had basic um, systematic problem solving. So their GE model was basically um, analyze the problem, brainstorm, sort. And so I kind of got used to that. And then I started to pick up other tools from working with other clients but I think today there's much more around. We sort of were inventing stuff. You know, you mm. learned about force field. There were some basics that had been around for decades. But then there's so much new stuff now. And I'm a particular fan of something online called Mind Tools. Yeah, yeah, and I'm familiar with them. So, yeah. yeah, and I think if you're in a company, you get your employer to buy you a license for a year, but you can even use it if you don't pay. And Mind Tools has such a huge catalog of processes now. It's just unending and people are contributing. I've added one to their roster. People contribute new ones all the time. And I think today it's much easier to work on process design because there's so many resources. Mm. Yeah. So, and how have you, since you're, you've been doing so much work, 
Have you seen uh, groups responding to facilitation differently today than they did 10 years ago? Or has the human dynamic element always been the same? I think that in the early years when I started, people were very resistant. I remember being in meetings where executives were saying, why are we doing this? Why are we all spending all this time talking to each other? Or I don't think teams work. I mean, we got all kinds of pushback. Mm. And then into the 90s and early 2000s, I think it really picked up and people were much more aware. And I had big corporate clients who wanted you know, everyone to go through facilitation, everyone to run their meetings a certain way. Now, I don't know what has happened. I am not as aware of what has happened uh, because of COVID, because I have more or less retired. Right. Um, I'm sure facilitation is very impacted because this was a high-touch in-person business. And I think that people who are working in it today are challenged because um, the online environment just it creates a whole different dynamic, I think. Yeah. Now the good, you're absolutely right. I think the first... Uh, six to eight months of the COVID was very, very challenging for groups, facilitators, uh, and then, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So uh, people started using all the online platforms, tools, connecting, and and, uh, they found ways to be effective as as much as they can be. Yes. As well. Um, And I've spoken to somebody, I think you're going to have her on your show, Malin. Yeah, Lauren, of course. Yeah, yeah. So she was telling me that she has many, many clients online. I was quite amazed. She has so many clients online. She loves it. She does it well. And I think she's going to really be able to give your listeners a lot of insight into how to make the business work in that environment. Uh, absolutely. And, and but, you, but you saw before the pandemic, you saw every managers at all levels and leaders at all levels, almost uh, for lack of a better word, lapping up facilitation and and more importantly incorporating it into their own leadership styles right as well i think i think it was going on with middle managers i'm not sure we've ever penetrated the senior people very effectively i don't know um Mm. i've not seen too many of them step up but i've seen middle managers use it with their staff and be be really pleased to know about some of the some of the tools which is great because eventually they'll become the senior leaders you know, <laughs> and, yes, and, that, yeah. and that creates the culture of the organization uh, uh, as well. Uh, you know, the, the other thing is, I know you also uh, early on, just before the pandemic, oh, sorry, before that, I, before I go to your uh, online courses that you created, you, know, you created this facilitator training that you did. And do you, I'm just curious because I, I'm going to ask you this question on one of our other conversations we had a few months ago. How many facilitators have you trained? Would you have a number on top of your head? In the online course? No, in, in the... Oh, me personally. Yeah, in the Facebook yeah, I I've tried to think of that number as well um, because I, I did it for, uh, I bet you, almost 30 years. Right. Um, so, um, and usually there'd be 30 people, 25, let's do some quick math, 25 people in a class times 25 um, sessions a year, let's say, and okay. then over like 25 years, what number did you come up with? Uh, and you're saying 25 years? 25 years, let's call it, or 30. Okay, so if you take 25 years, I'm thinking approximately 12 to 13,000, something like that, 12,000. 12, yeah. yeah. North wow. of 10, 
anyway. Yeah, definitely over 10. Yeah, easily. Definitely, definitely trained more than 10,000 people. And uh, although I also did OD work, I didn't just do training. And then my online course, I know I've got much more than 10,000 people in my wow. online course over 10 years because I started it in 2009. And people come on all the time and I, I see their names and I see them from all different countries. It's really quite great. So I know that I know that there's been um, at least 10,000 there. Right. So, so you did the book, you're doing all of this face-to-face uh, -face facilitation training uh, and you started the online course. It's, it's almost like you had your crystal ball that the pandemic was coming, but uh, well, no, 2009. This this is an old program. I, now. I, I know, I know. Uh, but what led you to create the online course? Is it just that you didn't want to travel, or you wanted to expand the scale of what you were doing? Yeah, it came about because I had a large, large client that was international, and they wanted everyone to take the training, and that was impossible. Hmm. So they said, "Why don't you do something online?" This was very early. It was built in Adobe Flash, which has gone away, has, has right. been put to, put to bed. And I redid it last year in Articulate. So um, it was very, very popular. The first 10 years I had a phenomenal number of people. Now it's kind of just, you know, going along. I have a steady group of, of, of customers in organizations buying seats. So mm. uh, all in all, I think it's been a great thing. I've, I've been surprised no one else came and did an online course. So I challenge all of your listeners, maybe instead of writing a book, think about putting something more online because there really isn't very much right now. Yeah, so so there, there are online instructor-led courses, but not online self-paced. And I think yours is very, very self-paced learning, right? Yeah, self-paced yeah. and it has videos so you can see practices good and bad practices and there's questionnaires. So it's a little interactive. It's hard to do interactive stuff online, mm. uh, but I tried anyway, and uh, I get good reviews. People come back and recommend it. So I guess they're getting value from it, but um, I think everything helps. So, you know, Ingrid, I know you said a few minutes ago that you're retired. It doesn't sound like you're retired with all the stuff that's going on uh, as well. And, and I'm guessing you have another book somewhere in, in the pipeline. You're writing something. I think I may have one more set of words to say on this topic, but I am eventually going to stop. Um, I did a project for um, a group in Washington, D.C. a few years back. It's, a, it's a, the National Institute for School Leadership. And they run a training program for teachers who want to become principals of schools. Oh, nice. And they run it in 38 states. It's an independent group. And I, they asked me to review their courses, read their books, and write them a white paper on how they could bring more facilitation into the principal's role. Mm. So I completed the work, did all the research. I ended up with an entire box, literally, of research. And now I'm facing the fact that I'm probably the only person in facilitation who's done this background work. Right. So I'm going to write a book. I've got it about a third finished called Essential Conversations for Schools. Very nice. And I think so that's at a principal level. Have, have you I, I know you, you started with the teachers and all of that stuff. Do you do you, do you feel that uh, facilitation has really permeated to the classroom for each no. teacher using it? No, it has no, not. Right? Yeah. It has really been surprising that given that it came from education, this is where facilitation was invented as an education tool. It has not permeated schools. 
Um, I did write a small book last year called Facilitating in the Classroom, and mm. I got 20 copies sent to me about one week before the pandemic, <laughs> and all classrooms were canceled. So it has been sitting, uh, but no, it, the teachers have not teachers have not um, been taught it. It's a shame, and it really needs to become part of uh, the education of teachers, how to facilitate in the classroom. Yeah, I'm, I, th this is actually, I did a program a couple of months ago, a pro bono session for a group of school teachers uh, in one of the cities in India. I did it virtually. And this is the third, the fourth year in a row I've been working with those teachers on how to use facilitation tools and methods in the classroom. And this is mm -hmm. like grade five, grade seven. Yes. Uh, uh, and they loved it. But one of the things that many of them said is the curriculum, the boards, the education system isn't very conducive to using this because they've got so much material to cover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so I think there's got to be a very system, uh, a larger systemic change that needs to happen. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's what you're seeing as well. I think it's true. I think bureaucracy is creeping into the health field. It's creeping into education. I think it's unfortunate. Um, however, there was a book in America called Teach Like a Pirate that was a huge hit, and it was all about creativity in the classroom. Mm. So um, there is a hunger for this. I think there is. And if you're going to teach teachers again, you might want to look at the Teach Like a Pirate book. Right. Um, or I will send you a copy of Facilitating in the Classroom, which is on Amazon. So um, if you like, I can see if I can get you a copy. But I think it's a, absolutely a big gap right now yeah yeah uh, so so where do you think it's going to go i mean what what's your crystal ball say with facilitation what's what's it going to look like in the next decade or so well i don't my crystal ball right now is not working um it was working up until the pandemic i thought i knew what was going on now i now it's a little cloudy and i can't yes. really look in i can't look in very clearly so i'm sorry uh, about that um, I think that um, it's still very, very needed, and you can see that it's needed and that organization development generally is very needed in uh, companies. Um, it is one of our big frustrations that it's not making the inroads. And so I think rather than make a, a crystal ball projection, I would throw the gauntlet down to, um, to all your listeners to say, what can you do individually to make it more accessible? You know, whether it's writing books like I'm writing now, the small ones targeted at different groups um, or training people like you are teachers and how to use it. How can we bring it to other fields? And um, one of the ideas I had a few years ago for the IAF that didn't really go anywhere is I think we should um, have some people. So this was a pre-COVID idea was to put together a little sort of a module and insert it into other people's conferences. Mm -hmm. So when there's a process improvement conference, we have a couple of people teaching facilitation there. Or when there's a teacher's conference, we have a couple of people teaching there. And I've done that. I've tried to go into other people's conferences. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to do some guerrilla warfare where instead of waiting for them to come to our conference, we go, we insert ourselves in their, in their line of sight so they see us. Yeah, it's, it, it has happened to some degree, but I'm not sure whether we went in or they discovered facilitation. I think they just incorporated, if you look at uh, the Project Management Institute or yes. the Business an Analysts or uh, yeah. the whole Agile software development, they use things like Scrum Masters who are essentially facilitators, right? Yeah. 
Yes, yes. They get yes. Together. So I think it's starting to happen. But you know, uh, the reason I asked you about the crystal ball is mine is also very, very cloudy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think for everyone's is anyone who can predict. So, so somebody was trying to predict the future. And I asked him, I said, if you're so good at predicting, why didn't you predict the COVID? <laughs> right? yeah. Why did you let us know ahead of time? Yeah. But, but anyway, <laughs> exactly. So but but I think my hope, though, is that uh, this pandemic gave a voice to a lot more people than ever before. You know, yeah. they, they start, and I think people are not afraid of speaking up uh, anymore. There, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff. So I think that serves uh, or it lays a foundation for organizations, leaders, managers to have to use facilitation because the groups now expect it. You know, it's it's almost yeah. the rather than yeah. push facilitation, now it's a pull. People are expecting saying, uh, you're not going to tell me stuff. Let's have a conversation around it. You may be right. The millennials have a lot of opinions and they want to voice them early on in the game. You yeah. know, so maybe there's a change there. Um, so I hope I hope your optimism is found is justified. Um, but I still think we need to do more to bring it out there to oh, put yeah. it in front of more people and Not repackage it. Yeah, repackage it as a skill like you know process improvement. We need to look for the ways we can jump in and and then you know push ourselves into that area. So. Anyway, so I think that's our ongoing challenge for sure. Yeah. So to me, I think it's almost the reverse. Like uh, it's easier in organizations. It's more challenging in communities uh, ah. because communities are getting a lot more, you know, with all the noise out there, more divided, yeah. more all of that. And it's sort of interesting because that's why I love your journey. You started with community conversations yeah. and development and moved to organizations. Uh, and when you said that, it was so popular in communities development. Today, I think communities need more facilitators than ever before. <laughs> but you're right. It's very challenging right now. Um, when you get a, a public hearing, I did public meetings for a while about uh, there was an environmental issue locally I did uh, where people were talking about the use of a park on a, on a waterway. And there was a thing here about fertilizer usage because it was contaminating the water. And boy, the, the special interests came out and disrupted, disrupted, disrupted. You get disruptive citizens. It's just, you know, we had norms. We did everything. And there were disruptive people all the way down to the council meeting. They, they fought us. So I think uh, public meetings uh, really are tough nowadays. Yeah, there, there's a lot more shouting going on than ever yes. before. No one's yes. listening anymore. And, yeah, and they, listening yeah. is a foundation for effective facilitation. Yeah. People. Well, we're still listening, but they're not listening to each other. They, each they other. refuse to hear a point of view. Now we're in a place here in the United States, and, and I think in other countries, where no one will tolerate a different point of view. Yeah. Um, and that's a really dangerous uh, situation. Yeah, that's why I think organizations are a lot easier, and we need to push back into communities in yeah. some shape or form as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's great to hear about the, the the book and so so I know we all read your book, Ingrid. What books do you read? All right, I, I of course I have a couple, and I think everyone already knows these. Um, there's the Skilled Facilitator by Roger Schwartz. I think once I think people should look at my book as sort of the 101 beginner's text. You know, I wrote for people who aren't going to go much further, but if you are going to go further, I think you have to look at Roger's book. 
Um, there was a great book written by Dale Hunter called The Art of Facilitation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you read that one? That's this, I think that's really good. And then another toolkit, a lot of tools in Christine Hogan's book called Practical Facilitation. It's right. pretty big, uh, but she's got a lot of stuff in there and a lot of stuff that I didn't cover. You know, and that's the good thing is we all have different things uh, that we wrote about. Uh, so mm. you really need you really need more than one guru, I think, on this on this topic. Yes, but but for the one on one stuff and and what got me started, Ingrid, you're it. Uh, wow. That's not going to change. <laughs> so so one one question I had. I mean, what are, since you've trained so many facilitators and you've probably done observations and teachbacks or facilitation backs yeah. with them. What, what are one or two of the most common mistakes that facilitators make and how, and what's the advice you would give to uh, upcoming facilitators? Um, I think it's always really, really hard to stop and check the process. And because we have our design, we really want it to go well, we barrel ahead and there's a great deal of risk in stopping and saying, is this working? Uh, because then people might say, no, not really. And then you have to adjust on the fly. And I think that's a really scary thing. Mm. Uh, and so maybe it's an advanced skill. But I found sometimes the best moments in any prolonged, <clears throat> excuse me, any prolonged session, I found the best moments are often when we did have a breakdown and we faced it. And maybe we would have people go around the room to a chart where they can speak privately about what's working and what's not. Right. And then what can we do to fix it and then be willing to fix it? And that takes courage and you have to know some alternative strategies <laughs> to go with. Uh, but we've had some of the best conversations when people were asked the question, are we really being honest? Are we really getting anywhere? Are we getting what we came to do and right. having them say no? And then why not? So it's a risky thing. And I think that's, that's one of the, the sort of the lines between a beginner and an advanced facilitators when you can, when you can open the conversation about what's not working well. And it takes a lot of vulnerability on, on, the, yeah. on the account of on the part of the facilitator, because yeah. we get so wedded to our process that we designed, right? Yes. That it has yes. to work. And just to say, something's not working here, folks, let's stop. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and we and and you shouldn't wait for them to say something's not working. Um, I would suggest you be the first person to say what's not working, and then give them privacy to talk to each other because they might not say it out loud if there's managers there. What's not working? What can we do to pick to pick this up? Is it the pace? And you know, give people away. Uh, maybe sometimes I do it when they're leaving in the morning for the afternoon. I have them do an exit survey where they can check off. You know, is it too fast? Is it too slow? Are we getting to the real issues? And then to come back and say, why did we get these ratings and what can we do to fix them? So that's a simple tool. Right. Um, and people feel, uh, I think they feel good about a facilitator who's willing to um, say, hey, you know, what can I do to make this better? Uh, I think that creates a good modeling in the room. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's absolutely right. I, I, I'm reminded by uh, something I read and heard, right? That we hold the space. We don't hold the out outcomes, the group, uh, and we just... All we do is just hold the space on behalf of the group. And sometimes yeah. you open it up to them and say, is the space working for everybody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, or is the yeah. process working? Is this tool even working? And then I think we, we create more honesty and then we raise the bar and then they can be more honest too and say mm -hmm. what's going on. So, yeah, I found that helpful. It is scary, but I would suggest that to people to think about, are you doing that when you're working with groups? So that's one. What's another? 
I'm, oh I'm sort God. of I'm, I'm I'm doing that to learn from you. Okay. Ah, <laughs> ah. Another another practice that people don't do enough. Don't do enough of yes. Um. So that one, I think definitely that one was the uh, is the main one. I think the other one is um, you have to become really good at managing conflict in the moment. So think about the language you're using. Are you, do you have enough um, language in your tool bag to be able to point out a difference of opinion? And sometimes, again, a, a good moment is two people start to, to argue with each other and we try to say, we try to sort of shut it down. We don't want it to happen because it's scary. Um, and again, how you handle conflict in a group is really the hallmark of your, of your effectiveness. And you have to be able to say, okay, let's stop here. We have two different views. Let's make sure we really hear them both and understand what's on the table, because this could be helpful, you know, to learn to thank people for bringing up a diverse point of view. So thanks for bringing that up. Let's see if we can do something without letting it derail you. And some people will do that just to derail things. So you have to sort of, you have to sort of be careful that you don't, you know, empower the disruptor. Mm. Uh, But I would say to people, learn more about, um, I think Dale Hunter calls it standing in the fire. Somebody called it standing in the fire. Right. Um, yeah. Being prepared to, um, to bring the conflict out and not squash it. Yeah. And, and so being comfortable with the uncomfortable in, in essence, right? Just those uncomfortable moments yeah. there in the room. And again, be the one who draws it to everyone's attention. Look, folks, we have some differing views here and learn language like differing views. Never use the word conflict ever, ever, yeah. ever. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Don't and just use just let's have some different let's hear them both. I'll chart them and let's see if we want to work with this at all or whatever. Hmm. Give them some method to see where the good where the benefits are in either idea. But you have to be the champion of differences of opinion. I think yeah. um, that's that takes a bit of courage too, but it's worth working on. Uh, I, I would agree. And, and the other thing I just want to love to get your view on is one skill that I've become better at, uh, and I still have a long, long way to go is the ability to observe the dynamics in the room, right? Just ah. sort of step back and, and sort yeah. of, you know, almost be out of body and, and just see what's going on around. Because so yeah. otherwise you don't pick up a lot of the nuances. You're so busy with the process or getting the next flip chart or just yeah. sometimes just observing that. Uh, I never used to do that early on. And I just, I just feel that yeah. I've got a lot more better at it. I don't know if that's... Yes, that's, I think that's also one of those advanced skills because we're, we're trying to hear the content so we can follow it and track it and record it. Then we're trying to pay attention to the process. Is this thing still working? Mm. Should I change? Um, and the pace, we're paying attention to the pace, but then you have to pay attention to the people as well, checking the people. And again, sometimes you have to, to step out and say, so let me just check in with you. Are people feeling energized, tired? Um, are we dragging this out? Are we hearing from everyone? So I haven't heard from you or you or you. And sometimes you have to be courageous enough to say to someone, I see a frown on your face. Tell me what it means. Yeah. Uh, again, yeah. you're asking for trouble when you do these things. But um, if someone's unhappy and they're sitting there looking concerned and you don't notice it and you try to ignore it deliberately because you don't want to have that complication in your meeting, I think you're not really fully doing the job. So, yeah, I think I agree with you. That's a great point, Vinay. That's sort of like ninja facilitation. I don't know if you want to call it that, right? The, yeah. There's labels people give it. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, you know, people say, well, those are advanced skills. But anytime you have human beings in the room, it's advanced just yeah. by the fact that they're people. 
and they're going to do all kinds of stuff and you need to be ready. So it's, I think being in facilitation is a very good mental training ground because you really do have to be agile. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I kept saying, you know, uh, flexible facilitation, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? We have a process, yeah. but we've got to be very flexible with it. Yeah. yeah brilliant. Or maybe uh, someone out there could write a book called courageous facilitation. Yeah. How to, how, to, how to call, how to bring out all these conflicts and, and how to handle them. Because I think that's one of the biggest challenges is when it doesn't go well. Yes, that is true. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. So Ingrid, this has been such an amazing conversation and just to be able to grab some of your time on it. So I want to, before I wrap it up, what's your, what's, what's your wish? What's your ambition or aspiration to where the field of facilitation is going to go. I know I asked you what, what's it going to look like 10, 12 years, but what's your aspiration? Well, I think the aspiration we should all have is that facilitation just becomes something everybody knows how to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, teachers, principals, community people. It would be great if every, every manager knew how to do it uh, because it's such a fabulous way of working with people. And I think it's a real um, shame that it hasn't uh, penetrated more fields in a more organic way. Uh, so we, we still have that challenge ahead of us. Um, and anything anybody can do to bring it to other fields and make it applicable to other areas, I think that's where we need to go next. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And that's why I love the IAF so much, both of us, right? Promote the power of facilitation worldwide. That's, yes, it does. That, yeah, it does. Yes, it does. Thank you so much for your time, Ingrid. This has been a brilliant pleasure. And uh, this is, interestingly, Facilitation Week, where we are trying to get more people in and understand facilitation and bring all the communities together. This is Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you for your work in, in, in bringing and, this to so many people. And thank you for all the inspiration you've given to me and okay. to so many others. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye for now. Ah, so... If you all felt like I was having a fanboy moment, it's true. I love that conversation with Ingrid. She's someone I've been very fortunate to get to know. And I hope you were inspired by her journey, the work that she's done with GE and some of the other companies. And I'm actually looking forward to her other books as well. So folks, drop us some feedback. Let us know how uh, you liked this episode and past ones. And let us know what kind of topics you want us to talk about in this podcast as well. Happy to find guests. And if you have a recommendation of a guest, let us know. With that, it's over and out. Bye.